everyone. Today's guest on Fashion for All, the Smart Glimmer podcast is Marie Espina. Marie falls under the media category of types of guests we'll be chatting with on the podcast. I'll let her introduce herself properly. We touch on how she got into her career as a writer, why she decided to leave New York City, how becoming a mother shaped her career, the community we've found through the internet, her tips for folks interested in writing as a profession, and so much more. Enjoy our conversation. Hi there. (laughs) Hi, Mallory. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah. Of course. (laughs) Could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Marie Southerd Ospina, and I'm a freelance journalist. So I do some writing, some editing, and digital content creation on social media. Wonderful. And could you talk a little bit about how you got to this job? Like, did you always want to be a writer or how did that happen? Yeah, so I think writing was just, yeah, it was always the thing that I was good at in school. And I think it was the it was the thing that I liked best in school. So it's been with me for a long time. I started studying journalism in 2009 and then... Um, by 2012, I want to say it was my senior year and we had to start a blog as part of our senior project thesis thing. And this was sort of, it, co- it coincided with um, a rise in plus size blogging, which I was really interested in as a fat woman who um, had kind of had a lot of body image issues my whole life um so I had to start this blog and I happened to be reading a lot of blogs about plus size fashion and body image and that's what I decided to do for my own blog um and it it started as a school project but it just kind of blossomed into a bigger project and then eventually it blossomed into freelance writing along the same topics so plus size fashion body image fat positivity and I've been doing that now since 2012 2013. Wow that's that's great I mean I feel like um so I feel like very often you know you hear people kind of that um especially who are in like slightly more creative careers that just like it's a little bit more curvy of a uh, trajectory yeah. <laughs> but I feel no, like it, you're like I went to school I did the thing I did the project yeah, <laughs> it's it's funny laying it out like that I was very lucky as well though um around the time that I graduated university my a former fr- well, a former classmate was interning at what was then a new startup in the women's digital media world called Bustle. Um, It was just a startup at the time. Mm. And they were really interested in having plus size content. So this, uh, this girl that I'd gone to school with sort of recommended me for that position. She said, Oh, I know, you know, I know someone who writes about this. And she'll probably be looking for work because we were recent graduates. So it was a a bit, a a lot of luck there. And um, that was eventually my first full-time full-time job but yeah i think it was it was a lot smoother of a journey than than it is for a lot of people i think i've 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 always liked writing it was the one thing i felt like i could do um so yeah and it, uh-huh. it's i've been very lucky yeah and that's um i was actually just going to going to bring up bustle since that's how we 
met um, and ask how you ended up there. So, so what was your um, trajectory like within Bustle from when you started to then before yeah, you left? So in 2013, I started just writing for them specifically for their fashion and beauty page. So I was mostly covering plus size fashion and I just started writing maybe one or two articles a week. Um, within maybe six months, those articles were resonating with people enough that they asked me to be a daily writer. So that became, um, that became a, a, a daily part of my life writing about plus size fashion and, and body image. And then about a year, mm. I think I wrote for them about a year um, when I got the full-time offer to be an associate fashion and beauty editor. And what I really loved about that role mm. was that the definition of beauty was kind of, it was broad. It wasn't just about makeup and uh, products, but you could incorporate conceptions of beauty, which is, I think, where a lot of body image and fat positive pieces came into play. Well, this is how beauty is conceived in the culture at large, and this is how we want to see that change, um, which I, I loved. I loved that they allowed for that for that range of content at a time when it still wasn't, it wasn't, you know, body positivity was not the buzzword that it is now in 2013. So <laughs> it was, it was nice. Yeah. It was really nice to be able to then have, um, have my own team and be able to bring on other fat writers and, um, just writers who'd been marginalized in one way or another and had always felt excluded from fashion and beauty. And then to, to be able to have that, have that team of people who really wanted to participate in these areas, but never felt like it was for them, feel like they have a space for it. That was really lovely. Um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all perfect. It was, I didn't, there was a lot about living in New York that wasn't quite right for me, but there's a lot about that job that, mm. that really was quite special. And I realized that the, like now that I'm sort of not not there anymore and I've separated myself from the city, which I think is ultimately the thing that wasn't best for me. I see all the really wonderful things that I got to do. And I'm so grateful that I was part of this. In some way, I was part of this like much bigger movement, even if it's, you know, it was a, in a small way, but it's something I'll always cherish, I think. And yeah, getting to meet people like you and just other people who care about bringing these ideals of uh, in inclusion into an industry that has not been known for that is just so amazing. Like I can't, I can't believe I've, I got to do that and that I still can talk to people <laughs> like you. It's just rad. <laughs> yeah. Um, could you maybe quickly explain for folks who may not know the difference between like just being a writer at a publication versus then becoming an editor? Like how do your, yeah, how do your roles change and are you still also writing? Yeah, so as a writer when I was um when I was working freelance writing, I was predominantly writing my own essays, things like listicles or roundups, um just yeah, just writing. But then as an editor, I still got to write my own stories if and when I wanted to, but the role changed to be more about editing other people's content. So I'm not sure how other publications do it. The way that Bustle did it was um, associate editors got to essentially hire their own team of anywhere from like five to 20 writers, depending on um, on the things that you were covering, depending on the length of articles you needed. 
I think my team eventually ended up being about 18 people. So I worked with 18 writers um, and they were all doing a whole range of material from personal essays to reported stories, interviews with people within this world of body politics um, and then more listicle stuff. Like, I, I mean, I do love fashion and beauty on in the sort of most base baseline definition of that in terms of like the the role makeup and clothes play in our lives like I still I still love to cover things like that and so did they so it was a big range of of stories and I think I was editing so yeah 18 18 writers and probably 18 stories a day we were publishing yeah wow it's a lot of content <laughs> so every <laughs> yeah yeah so every writer was basically doing it one pretty day. much yeah or if it was writers who were doing like shorter stories they might have been doing three a day um and then yeah that was if it was just like short little newsy pieces or shorter shorter listicles there, there were writers who did three pieces a day wow I know so <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know I think I think there I think a lot of that was also startup culture like um just getting all this content out there and saturating saturating the web with it um while they were getting known because I mean even even now like bus I mean bustle I don't know what their stats are now um it's been a while since I've been there but like they grew to being like the biggest women's site in the whole world in terms of clicks but a lot of people still don't know the name it's really bizarre like if you're just in casual conversation with people and you say you know I used to work at bustle or like like they won't know it in the way that they might a site like glamour or allure or these legacy mm-hmm. sites. Um, but I think part of that content saturation mm-hmm. was part of the growth strategy maybe. And I know they don't, I don't think that they publish that quantity anymore. That was just, yeah, that was just what it was. And I was just one editor. So I think fashion and beauty probably published about 75 articles a day when I was working there, which is mm-hmm. that, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a lot of content wow. <laughs> for better or worse. Yeah. I wonder, I I feel like that's, that's, so accurate even when I'm like telling folks like where I've gotten press you know I feel like I say bustle and people don't not as many people recognize it but if I say like you know 17 or team Vogue or whatever people are like oh I know that and I I wonder if it has to do with the fact that like all these other fashion publications started with like like yeah. had print like that was like their main thing and then they had to pivot to digital whereas like bustle started That's as true. digital yeah definitely because you know? i think people it's a similar thing with sites like refinery 29 or like exo jane and jezebel for a time i think these were sites that exclusively mm-hmm. like you said started online and maybe the reach is different like unless you're specifically looking for sort of feminist women's content online and that's a thing that you do you you just you why would you see the names in the way that you would if you were at a store and you saw a counter full of like Cosmo and 17 and Allure it's yeah maybe maybe less people come into contact with the names of these digital sites um, and yet they have they have so much reach it's it's yeah it's very strange it's a strange world right. <laughs> that's definitely <laughs> true um <laughs> so then you did, did you leave bustle and new york city at the same time yeah or i, can't I, I pretty much time. did um so i left 
Well, I left I left my full-time role with them in the fall of 2016, but I continued writing for them as well as their sister site Romper um because I became a mom. So I I got pregnant in the yeah, I think it was well, I got pregnant in spring of 2016. I didn't find out until the fall of 2016. So Around the time that I got pregnant, I was also reaching a very strange place with my mental health of it, just realizing that I, I wasn't in the right place in my life. And it it wasn't about my job so much as uh, New York. I There's so much about New York that is amazing, but there's also so much that puts a lot of pressure on you, I think, to... I mean, people go to New York to like chase their dreams and, and do so many amazing things, but it's also really exhausting to try to, to try to do that all the time and to like try to just climb ladders and I, I don't know it was that's how I felt there like everyone was trying to this is this is mm-hmm. such a generalization but it was just I don't know a lot of people go there to for their careers and that's great if that works for you but I think my career sort of became my whole life and then that wasn't working for me um I don't know if it was Mm -hmm. the city or the job or the combination of the things. So when I found out I was going to have a kid, there were a lot of reasons that I just didn't feel like I could stay in the city. I didn't feel like I could make it work financially. At the time, my partner was unemployed, so we were relying just on my income, and I didn't feel like that income would be enough if we were adding a third person into the mix. Cost of living. I mean, you know, cost of living in the city. Um, it's uh-huh. it's hard. It's really hard. Um, I didn't have very good health care. Um, and I didn't have a lot of support in terms of um, our, our sort of families. Um, my partner's family is from the UK. My family was in New Jersey, but they were far enough away that like they wouldn't be around for for child care help or support I thought that we would be very alone if we had a kid and I thought that I wouldn't really be able to see that kid very much if I was still trying to maintain the same work rhythm um and again like these are all such personal choices I know I know people who work these like big digital media jobs who do have families and they just find ways of balancing it that that works for them um for me I just got really overwhelmed trying to figure that out so we decided mm-hmm. to come to the UK um, and raise our kid here, which is where my partner's family's from. Um, cost of living in the particular area we're in is really low, um, or at least comparatively to New York, as are most places. <laughs> um, uh, there's a lot of socialized <laughs> benefits over here, to be honest. Um, healthcare is free. Uh, preschool, like childcare, nursery is free. And it just made a lot mm-hmm. of sense for us. Um, and it's the town that we're living in is like, it's just like this countryside town, but it's really connected through trains to like lots of cities. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. I can raise my kids around a lot of green stuff, but mm-hmm. I can still take, well, not in COVID times, but before COVID and after COVID, you know, we mm-hmm. could take the train into the city if and when we want to. Um so yeah, lots of a lot of big moves happened around yeah. the same time uh, that were ultimately, I think, they right. were ultimately good good for me and good for my family. But it was yeah, I think leaving New York 
um, it was really hard because there are a lot of amazing things that that city can bring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I totally, being somebody who who has lived in New York City since 2005 and uh, adamantly <laughs> refuses to leave, <laughs> um, I'm sitting sitting right now at my husband's desk and right in front of my face is a big poster that I bought him for Christmas that says it will always be New York or nowhere. (laughs) So we we clearly have a very, very specific point of view in this house, but I totally understand what you're saying. And quite honestly, like um, how you're mentioning like, Oh, I don't know if it was the city over, it was the city plus the job all combined or whatnot. But like, you know, when you were mentioning, you know, the job kind of taking over your life and, your your job kind yeah. of becoming your life. I mean, that's something that I've had to deal with myself as well. And, I, and I've never really thought about like how much New York impacts yeah. that or not. Um, I don't know. I'd, I'd have I to think, think on that. But I mean, you're you're running a one woman like, show yourself. Like you you have a whole business. You you do every element of your business. Like so, I think it it probably would would be this huge thing in your life, no matter what. But I don't, there's something about the vibe of, mm-hmm. of New York. Maybe it's, I mean, it's so saturated. New York is like, as soon as you leave New York and you tell somebody that you decided, I, I don't know, this has been my experience. After I moved, if ever anyone mm-hmm. found out that I'd actively left New York to live in like a small town in the countryside, they just, the, people people look at me like I've just done like, the just the most ridiculous thing that you could do like they I think it's just there's it's so glamorized and it's there are reasons for that of course but it's like I think people we I don't know I think there's a big association between New York and like the pursuit of certain career aspirations and it's a place that I think people believe you can go to and like just make it make it and whatever it is that you want to make it um and that might be true for a lot of people mm-hmm. but there's also a shit ton of struggle in the city it's just that's mm-hmm. just the narrative that i think is is ascribed to it it's like dreams and success and i don't i i definitely yeah. think i felt i felt that from a lot of people that was what they were trying to do it's which is again like that's fine like mm-hmm. these career aspirations we all we all have them and we all have to figure out a lot of us do anyway and if that's if New York and that sort of pace of life works for you, then that's amazing. Like I, I do love the city. I will always love the city. I think it just wasn't right for me. But um yeah, mm-hmm. I, I will always keep going back for visits because it's full of a lot of beautiful beautiful people <laughs> and beautiful stuff. It's yeah, it's just a very different pace than what I'm living now in like the middle of nowhere, Yorkshire, England. Um where I can, you know, <laughs> go out and find a cow or a sheep, like, uh, to take my kids to go visit. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's just totally different world. It's really, yeah. Tangent. Yeah, that's super fair. I mean, also just, you know, everybody, <laughs> yeah, tangent. <laughs> everybody has, you know, everybody has different pre- preferences. And like, I think, um, kind of like a very, uh, generalized thing that's not, only a, a you know New York versus other places thing is that sometimes when people feel really strongly about something being their preference, it's like they expect it to be everyone else's preference yeah. too, which is kind of odd. 
like I mean, like uh, I'm sitting in front of this New York or nowhere sign because that's what we feel. Yeah. But like, I mean, I hold no no weirdness against anyone who doesn't feel that way. No. I mean, like if this is not the place where you to live, then yeah. that'd be cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, <whatever. laughs> um, uh, and it also it's so interesting. You're the third person that I've talked to on the podcast so far specifically about um motherhood and how that affects um careers and how people have made various choices um around that and two of the three have made uh choices you being one of them to kind of like you know leave a busy city and take a different direction and then the third um kind of like left a more stable career to do a more creative career actually um because of motherhood um so i'm curious like i mean obviously you said that you started writing for romper because uh it was a sister site to bustle and because you became a mom are there other ways that your writing career has shifted around becoming a mom i think uh the addition of writing for parenting sites is the biggest thing um, that changed. Obviously, that wasn't something I could do before. But uh, yeah, writing for places like Romper and Motherly and Cafe Mom became part of my life. Um, I think they're they're all quite interested in the millennial mother experience. So that they're yeah they're mm-hmm. all very like millennial driven sites. Now that I think about it, so it. It just worked. That really fit in well with my life because, as like, I was suddenly that became raising these. Well, now two. I have two little ones now. Raising them became the thing that I was spending most of my time doing, and subsequently the thing that I was reflecting on the most. So, being able to write about that um, has become a really, really nice sort of way of still feeling connected to like my pre-mom self because I can still do my writing and I can still feel like I have an outlet for the things that I'm thinking about but I can also still be home um with them quite a lot but I still I still write about body politics at large and writing about the intersection of the two has been quite interesting um my eldest is four and she's only just kind of she's starting to pick up on social ideas regarding bodies um just i think and certain mm. things being thought of as good and certain things being thought of as bad she it's yeah it's it's so wild to see that develop because for the most part we you know we we really try to keep any sort of body shame out of the house um we try to have as much like diversity in the books we're reading and the things that she's watching and we try to just have really like neutral language that sell that like is neutral language that you know suggests all bodies are good all people are good but she still picks up on things like mm-hmm. i mean she goes to she goes to preschool now so she'll come back and she'll think she'll be talking to me about how um you know so and so at school um somebody was mean to them because they have um they have a big face or so and so was mean to somebody else mm. because they were sweaty or so and so looks funny because they have glasses um and it's like we know that she hasn't really picked up on that those types of like that language from us but it's already penetrating in in little ways 
And so it's it leads me to think a lot about how to raise children who have a strong foundation of like body positivity and and self-worth and respect for all people. And so yeah, I try to find ways of writing about that and um you know, I, my kids are still really young. So whether any of the things that I'm brainstorming will work long term, I don't know. But I can still sort of write about my thoughts on it and hope, hope that the little things we're doing mm-hmm. do play a role long term. But I do, I do really like about writing about the intersection of these topics. And I can still do a bit of editing as well. So I'm editing part-time for Salty, which is an intersectional feminist publication, um, oh. and mm-hmm. The Fat Zine, which is an independent um, for and by fat people zine, which um, was lo- it was founded by um, a couple of fat positive advocates. And yeah, I still get to do some editing on these topics and I still get to do some writing on these topics. And the best thing is I get to do it from home, which just works, works really well for me because I think I still wanted to be able to see these little people as much as possible. So it's, it's a bit, I mean, most of the time there are days when I'm like, (laughs) I just, I really need a break, but um, yeah, it's, Mm -hmm. it's really hard. I think finding the career and motherhood balance has been one of the hardest hardest mm-hmm. journeys that I've tried to undertake um and I think leaving leaving a role where I think there was a lot of potential for growth and like I see people that I that I worked with who might not be at bustle anymore but maybe they're at the New York Times or maybe they're full-time at Glamour or Allure or CNN and I'm like did I did I make the wrong choice like maybe I could have been at the New York Times um but yeah maybe (laughs) I don't know but but maybe I wouldn't have really seen my kids as much and I think for me that was that was just the the thing that I and no judgment to anyone who makes any other choice because it's so hard and it's there is no one right choice right like we all have to make the one that's that's right for our family unit and I would never ever judge anyone who chooses anything different um but yeah I think I think I'm I'm starting to to feel like like it's it was I'm at a good place with it I can I can find time to do my work and my work that makes me feel connected to like other things about my other things about my identity in my life um and I can still have my kids and it's yeah I think yeah I think I'm happy is what I'm trying to say which is which is good (laughs) Good. (laughs) that is good (laughs) um when you were talking about your kids and um body image it made me think about um I often wonder or like or like I'll be asked interview questions and then it will make me try to wonder even more about it like how we grow up to have the beliefs that we have mm-hmm. and like obviously once you're an, a full adult if you are interested in like unlearning and relearning you know there's there's things that can happen there but you know I just think about how I it's almost like I I magically grew up to even as a young person, as a teenager, be somebody who just thought 
everybody deserved equal access Mm -hmm. to things and like I didn't hold a hierarchy of bodies in my own personal opinion and I have always wondered how like how that happened yeah (laughs) um and you know just thinking about you having these conversations with your daughters and like um where they are picking things up from outside the home versus the conversations you're having inside the home and I just think about you know my mom it's almost like we never really talked about mm. bodies or appearances and specifically um I think in a world that always wanted to talk about my appearance my mom never really talked about it and was always way more concerned with you know what am I achieving? What am I good at? Um, how do I treat other people? And I think just by doing that, that became what was yeah. important to me, you know? Um, and then also there was a few times throughout my life where she fiercely stood up for my bodily autonomy to Amazing. others. Um, like, I will never forget when I was in fourth grade. Um, my mom used to let me wear makeup however I felt okay. uh, if I wanted as a kid. And I was in fourth grade and I had some lipstick on at school. And I was like delivering something to teachers because I was super goody two-shoes. <laughs> so that was like something that I was often tasked with. And I went to this sixth grade teacher's room to give him something from my teacher. And he kind of just like – ripped me a new one for having lipstick on and just he thought it was so inappropriate and I had never even thought about that being appropriate or not appropriate just like you know my mom let me wear pink lips to school who cares yeah so I went home and I told her that happened and she got so mad and she was just like wrote a letter to the school and was like if anyone at the school ever has an issue with something that you are wearing or doing, you tell them that they can, you give them my full name and you tell them that they can contact me and I will discuss that with them and blah, blah, blah. And I was just Mm -hmm. like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and I think things like that, (laughs) yeah, things like that, I feel um, that just like when you show your child, like I'm here for the decisions that you make about yourself, um, I think those go a really long way because I mean, like, you know, we can't change society as a whole and like what mainstream media is going to impress upon people, you know, and especially children. But I think that um, I think the, you know, the conversations that that you I'm sure are having when she comes home and says things like that to you um, and just the, you know, the kind of like living by – What's the word? Just like demonstrating what it means to uh, have have autonomy over your body and make yeah. your own choices. I think I think goes a really long way. I hope so, and I think yeah, ex- like the example with you and your mom. I think what we we can't save our children from everything that's going on and everything that's said outside of the home and all the toxic messages that are just saturated in mainstream media and everywhere. Um, but we can give them a foundation is what I always try to think so that maybe, I mean, we can't stop them from having struggles, but maybe if the foundation is strong enough, they'll still, they'll just find a way of holding on to that. Um, I think when I, when I try to think of my childhood and the first sources of 
sort of harmful body rhetoric even before anyone like made fun of me for being chubby I think I just I picked up on the way mostly the women in my life talked about their own bodies so my my mom Mm -hmm. was always standing in front of a mirror trying to tuck in her tummy and um you know asking my older brother like does this make me look too fat and my mom is petite my mom is a tiny woman but she just spoke about her body negatively all the time and spoke about the possibility of looking fat as um, a, a big negative so i think that sort of language i i learned i digested it when i became bigger than her which was not it didn't take that long for me to be bigger than her um i think i understood that that wasn't a good thing because whenever she talked about being big it was framed as a bad thing so it must be a bad thing that i was big and it wasn't just her i mean it was it was just it was just all of the women in my life my aunts and my grandma and my sisters and eventually i was also bullied at school but even before that like it it wasn't being bullied at home so much as yeah just listening listening to the way that all these women who i loved and thought were beautiful were speaking about themselves and i really really hope that that's like one major thing that will be different in my house is they will only ever hear their mom saying nice things about her body and i try to do that all the time and like i try to say like um just words of affirmation and love towards like my body and my big tummy and my big bum. And like, they, you know, they think it's cute when like, I, like I wear different things and I'm like, Oh, I just, you know, I love my, my big tummy in this dress. Like, I just hope that things like Mm -hmm. that provide an alternative narrative to whatever they hear elsewhere. And Mm-hmm. And my my partner as well. Like he 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 would never say anything body negative around them. So I hope I hope they're still too young to to know if this stuff will make a difference. But I think it will. Like I mean, it's we learn mm-hmm. we learn a lot of stuff at home before we learn it anywhere else. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Um, so I kind of want to go flashback a little bit to. Um, you know, you said that you, when you started writing, you, um, were, you had created the, the fat fashion blog and you had been reading, um, others that were created by other people. And I'm just curious, like your relationship to fashion before that and how finding those blogs kind of like, uh, put you into the fashion space and then like, um, how you how your career and yourself moved from there especially because we all know that you know plus size fashion is such a smaller percentage um in the in the fashionscape even though it's the majority of people yeah um so like so how how did you navigate all of that yeah so before before that blog i think probably since i was a teenager i was really interested in clothes and in the idea of experimenting with clothing, but I never felt like that was possible for me because of the limitations in plus size fashion itself. So growing up in the early 2000s in 
small town New Jersey where there was one shopping mall. There were no plus size specific stores in that mall. There were only um, the sort of plus size sections of the major department stores, like the plus size section at JCP or um, I don't know where else, Macy's or Boscov's. Like, I think those were the three that we had in our town. And these, yeah, these, these sections of clothes, they're, I don't know, they, I guess I would describe them as more matronly. Like they were, they're designed for, I think, an older woman, not a, you know, not a teenager necessarily, who's just trying to fit in and experiment with her look. So there were just limitations in what I could do. And I, I wasn't really, I know a lot of people um, who took things into their own hands and maybe learned to sew and make their own clothes. But I just, I think I tried, I tried taking a couple of sewing lessons with my mom and just decided I wasn't very good at it and gave up. So for for the entirety of um, sort of growing up, I think I just, I tried to shut away that interest in fashion because I think as Kelsey Miller, who is um, another plus size writer, once wrote, I was always interested in fashion, but I never thought fashion was interested in me. So it wasn't until... Mm -hmm finding these blogs, these plus size fashion blogs, that I even discovered the fact that there were places out there making kind of interesting clothes for plus size people. Um, I wasn't super internet savvy um, until that that class, which was a digital media class. So maybe if I had Mm. been, I would have found some of these online plus size shops. But I just don't think it ever really occurred to me to look online, to be honest, until 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 late college um, and finding these blogs. So I think it was probably, you know, Gabby, Gabby Gregg and Nicolette Mason would have been amongst the first ones that I found. Um, they're sort of like mm-hmm. the OGs of plus size fashion blogging and Kelly Brown. Um, mm-hmm. And for the, this was like I had just come back from. um from a year of studying abroad and during that year a lot of stuff happened that sort of changed my relationship with my body it was the first time that I lived away from my family in such a big way and it was the first time that I was just really on my own um meeting people on my own and I I studied abroad in Spain and I was really stricken by the fact that a lot of the fat women that I was seeing in Madrid were like in tight clothes it's just I remember being really I I I took note of it because whenever I'd met fat women in my life they often try to hide their bodies as much as possible and for some reason the first time I really saw like a fat woman in a bodycon outfit was was that that semester abroad and it that whole semester I just kept meeting these amazing like fat women who were just just living their lives really freely and loudly and it was really quite inspiring for me as someone who'd always been bigger but full of self-loathing and disordered eating habits and I'd never seen my body as something that I could celebrate so I was seeing all these women I was also meeting people who um for the first I mean it was kind of the first time I came into contact with people who really identified as feminists and who introduced me to um these bigger subjects and terms that described a lot of feelings I had always had but just um, never could articulate I also started 
started letting myself mm-hmm. date, which was not something I'd ever really felt that comfortable exploring because of all my body insecurities. And I think realizing that, that I, I don't know, I think like fat, fat kid mentality and the things that you consume and the things you're told as a fat kid are usually along the lines of, you know, you're unlovable, you, you probably need to change before you can have X, Y, and Z, not just fat kids. I mean, people tell fat, fat adults this all the time. Um, you have to change, you have to shrink before you can date or before you can have a job or before you can do X, Y, Z cool thing. And I just started letting myself, um, live in my fat body and do the things that I thought I couldn't do. So it was quite a transformative year. And it coincided with coming back to the States and finding all these blogs where, um, so many women were just doing the things that I had been made to believe you couldn't do when you were fat, be it dress really stylishly or just, you know, care for yourself, love yourself, um, or date or travel or whatever, whatever it might be that you want to do. Um, so that was, I think finding these blogs also led me to finding independent plus size fashion retailers and just yeah mostly online sites that were making really cool stuff that I'd never seen in my size before and so I started uh, changing the places that I shopped and I started dressing myself and experimenting with clothes in a way that I think I'd always wanted to do because I'd always had this interest but I'd just never been able to um and I think Mm -hmm whilst I whilst I think that like the clothes we wear should not be the be-all and end-all of our self-worth and self-image I do think that there's a lot of value in experimenting with your look and wearing like quote-unquote rule-breaking garments um that defy all the expectations put on your body so I I I loved Mm -hmm. just starting to see the way that my body looked and felt in like tight clothes or really colorful clothes or just really bedazzled clothes and just feeling like, um, like, yeah, like, like I was entitled to that after a lot of years of being told that I wasn't. Um, and these, it was through like a lot of these plus size fashion blogs that I learned about a much bigger world of like fat liberation work and body image work. And there's so many, excuse me there's so many artists and activists and writers and poets and uh, fashion designers like yourself and just there's so many people who are pieces of this greater puzzle to make things more inclusive um and it all yeah I found that I found this world through through fashion blogs Mm -hmm. that's so interesting I mean (laughs) I have such a um feel like something that I talk about a lot or, or say a lot maybe mostly more in my personal life than than necessarily um in my public facing life is just like how the internet in general <clears throat> it, it's responsible for so many incredible things and I know it's also responsible for so many it terrible is. things yeah um, but it's just like it really I mean, the internet basically made everything that you just said possible. Exactly. You oh, a hundred percent. Started yeah. finding these blogs, and then it just 
it just i just i personally know that like i watch real life communities exist and happen on the internet and people support each other and share resources and um create like real lasting um you know friendships and 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 yeah, I mean, it's just, it's so incredible. And I'm so, I'm very grateful that, yeah. <laughs> that it exists and that, and that we live in a time um, where it can, because, you know, um, if we were even 20 years older, it, it would just, our experience would be so oh, yeah. different. A hundred percent. I think, yeah, the role the internet has played in bringing together, also like, and bringing people together and bringing marginalized people together and creating these these communities mm. that then can extend into real life like i i have made friends um through the world of like plus size blogging and fat liberation on instagram who i then eventually might get to meet in real life and like those or and even if i don't like those friendships can be so transformative and can can just change change so much about your life for the better i think as with mm-hmm. as with like the internet at large i think you do you do have to sort of curate what you're consuming if you want if you want it to ultimately be good for you like i i can't um i don't know the out al- the algorithms on instagram are just a hot mess mm-hmm. so like I still get quite a lot of diet related and weight loss related ad- advertisements and stuff because I think people like I think it the bots or whatever have realized that I search for a lot of plus size content so along with searching for plus size content you automatically get bombarded with like weight loss and dieting content however I can still curate the people that I'm following I and I can try to make sure that I'm only following people who bring a sense of positivity and empowerment to my life and I think that's something that we all have to have to be mindful of because there is so much trash on the internet and there's so much toxicity as well. But you can have a really beautiful experience with the internet if you just if if you are careful and if you just if you actively look for alternative messaging, which is out there. And it's yeah, like like you said, it, it can be so life changing when when you find this content. Mm-hmm. But then I think <laughs> <laughs> that just ties me back into like feeling like people also need to have like internet literacy mm-hmm. and like be able to think about you know sources of where things are coming from. I mean, clearly that's such a <laughs> such a problem right now, and yeah. I don't even really want to dive too far into it. But just just to quickly say that, <laughs> like, I think as the internet takes <clears throat> over, you know. the society exists like we really need to start reckoning with and teaching people of all ages really but you know also children just like when you're using the internet these are also things that you need to take and take into consideration and like here's how to look up definitely the source of this information here's how to tell the difference between you know propaganda versus someone's you know yes I don't know, like a, like a well, well, well sourced, well documented study. Like, I mean, you know, they're not, yeah. <laughs> it's not apples to apples. <laughs> no. Uh, and that's so, no, that's no, probably no. something a lot of people don't, it's not something that a lot of people will be thinking about because I think we're so enmeshed 
with our technology now just yeah we're so Mm -hmm. it's such a part of our lives and the way that we communicate I think we just yeah we we forget that I mean as adults we have like we can come to this place of understanding of you know I can I can sort of control the things that I read and research and see but as kids yeah I think kids especially do need these internet literacy guidelines guidances Mm -hmm. it's yeah that's given me a lot to think about and my kids they don't have phones and they won't have phones for a long time but when it comes to it Mm -hmm. I think we have to have a lot of conversations about ways to utilize the internet that are harmful um versus helpful Mm -hmm. absolutely um so towards the end of this lovely chat uh, I'm curious. I'm sure there are a bazillion things <laughs> because we're all critical thinking beings on this podcast. But what are maybe the one or two main things you'd like to see change within the space that you work? So, like specifically within writing, or it could be writing about fat politics, or writing about fashion, or you yeah. know, any of those um, areas. I think one of the biggest thing I so I write I write for a lot of um specifically like women's women centered publications um most of which are trying to cover news uh from a feminist perspective as well but I think a lot of uh feminist media does need to become more intersectional in its approach. So I'd love to see um, all of these women's sites that are trying to be more feminist and more inclusive really infiltrate that in like every department. So like you need, you need, if you want to create diverse content that reaches all sorts of people, I think you need diverse people at all levels of your content creation. So you need Mm -hmm. a team of of people who just live at different in different identities and at, at intersections and you need you need that diversity to be on the editing team on the sales team on on the writing team um and i i would just love to see that prioritized more and more across the sites a lot of them are are, are starting to do it um particularly i think particularly digital sites um like refinery and and bustle um but I'd love to see it in these like big legacy names as well. Like I would love it if sites like Glamour and Allure, which still have print um, as well as digital incorporated, like a really sincere level of inclusivity across the board um, size diversity as well. It's, I feel like when I was editing, it was sort of this amazing period in time for those few years when I was editing full-time at Bustle. I mean, I feel like, I was witnessing this amazing, mm-hmm. like, it felt amazing at the time, this amazing, like, penetration of body positivity into a lot of corners of media. And I've felt that dying out a little bit the last couple of years, or not dying out. I mean, people are still doing it independently. But in this big sort of way, I think we've we've lost, like, momentum with it a bit. So I just, I just hope that, especially in these women's sites that are trying in theory to be very intersectional I hope that they that they continue to see the value of having diversity in all categories in all aspects of their publication process 
And in terms of, of I guess, fashion, um, I want to see more of, of the kind of thing you're doing. Like, it should be the norm that a person of any size can walk can can buy clothes can have access to clothes like it's it's so hard still for especially for super fat and infinity fat people on the sort of upper end of the plus size spectrum to find clothes we need even if you're not interested in like fashion um you need to dress yourself and clothes affect every aspect of our lives like i you know <sighs> applying for jobs um you need you often need to dress a certain way mm-hmm. and not having access to clothing like uh, there's there's re- there's so many reasons right that it's been proven that like plus size people statistically earn less money and that uh people who are like uh, super fat and infinity fat struggle in the workforce struggle to get hired like it's really mm-hmm. hard to dre- to dress to dress yourself when nobody's making clothes for you and so it's really hard to put on a professional mm-hmm quote-unquote professional image if nobody's making clothes for you and I just think Mm -hmm. it's you know plus size people are the plus size women make up the majority of of consumers um but we we certainly do not have a majority of clothing available to us so and that gets harder and harder the bigger you are so access to clothes um incorporation of plus sizes into retail i i hope i really hope we keep seeing it and i'm so i'm very grateful for mostly the independent designers and independent sites that are doing as much as they can to to do that to just to dress to dress every body which is these are big mm-hmm. dreams um and we're you know we're seeing people really really <laughs> trying to make them a reality but i just i hope i hope we don't mm-hmm. lose momentum with it yeah, I agree. I think about that a lot, especially um, when I, th- you know, when I'm looking at the the items that I sell the most of and like the sizes that I sell the most of, um, I've actually seen a, a bigger uptick in the past year or so of sales of my sizes that um, are above a 6X. Okay. Um, so like above what a lot of plus sizes stop mm-hmm. at and I wonder and I I honestly think it's probably just because more like word of mouth is just getting around a little bit more and so more people are mm-hmm. hearing that that I'm a resource for for those sizes and I just you know I think about where else can somebody get like a nice pair of dress slacks when you are above a, even a 10x you know and I just yeah. don't know if there really are, or are like really anywhere else. And, and if there is, you know, it's definitely, you can count it on one hand. Yes. And I think that that's something that a lot of people in smaller bodies, even smaller plus size bodies don't really think about. Like, you know, there's when, when you're my size, there's endless options yes. for where I can go get a pair of dress slacks. I could walk down the street and probably find someplace in my neighborhood where I could get a pair. Um, so I uh, yeah I agree I think that those those things really need to be focused on and talked about um, and just the full circle issue about access to these things and how that then affects everything else and also then you know if it's going to affect people's livelihood and their work then we also need to talk about the access price yes. point wise 
um not just size wise and you know anyway i could go no, i can ramble about it's, that for, yeah it's just <laughs> it's all time. so important and it's there's so many layers to this stuff um and yeah as mm-hmm. um even i i think i i'm sort of a mid mid fat person i'm like sort of straight in the middle of that plus size um plus size spectrum um mm-hmm. <clears throat> which means my size is typically at like a 3x 4x a lot of these so-called inclusive brands stop at my size um mm-hmm. and I, I just think mm-hmm. and the way they market themselves is often as being size inclusive and that's that's another thing that i would love to see change is that that label not being placed on things that still exclude so many people um and you see that mistake everywhere mm-hmm. i'm sure i mean you've you've written about this you've spoken about it you see that label even like even on you know we're talking about like the changes we want to i want to see in these um women's sites at large um just being more mindful of language and god knows like there's times i probably stuck that label on things um that were not size inclusive especially like we i mean we're all learning but in my early days of editing i i probably used language like that to describe things that that just weren't inclusive so it's it's so 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 many plus size collections still don't include fatter people it's it's so mm-hmm. wild um and yeah it's just sad it's really sad mm-hmm. and messed up um i agree um so so uh we'll try to, we'll try to bring <laughs> it up a little bit at the very end here and say <laughs> this is a pattern that I've seen emerging, uh, which is my fault because I structured the episodes. But anyway, <laughs> so what is something um, positive or, you know, quasi advice like something um, you might say to people who um, are similar to you in some way, whether they are plus size or whether they are interested in fashion and for whatever reason feel like that's not something that they can participate in or maybe they want to be a writer but they have no idea how to start Mm -hmm. like what is just something um uplifting you might say to somebody who is interested in the things that you're interested in I think in terms of people who might be interested in writing I think that the best place to start um if you haven't yet been published is to create your own blog or to create your own articles on a platform like medium um to just start writing and Mm -hmm. to create enough of a body of work that when you then want to pitch um an idea to a more established site you can link back to sample sample work um i know that when i was editing and like kind of actively looking for writers um it was really nice to be able to see bits of their writing so and that doesn't have to mean um at like a big fancy site you just you know people editors usually just want to see want to see what 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 you what you want to say and how you want to say it and I think creating that content for yourself on a site like medium or an independent blog that will always be something that you can then link to and I think that that has a lot of value um and then in terms of fashion I think I think it's really nice that there are more options now if you're interested in plus size fashion, be it in terms of modeling or designing or 
writing about plus size fashion there is there are more options for that now than there used to be i think who i think in terms of um of writing about plus size fashion i think it's a similar thing like start doing it on your own start create people people kind of talk about like blogs dying out now and the focus being more social media but i think in terms of professional writing i think a blog still is a really important thing that you can do just to to create that body of your work and instagram is also really helpful in terms of writing about fashion and posting about fashion because i think a lot of people are on there specifically to look at photos and read captions about fashion and that holds true for plus Mm -hmm. sizes there's such a huge plus size community on instagram and i would just say if you have that interest just start doing it just start dipping your toe into it on your own um and then then will come the time of pitching pitching a site um but then you can link back to your awesome, the awesome things you've been doing. So I think that's just, I don't know if that's helpful or just really obvious, but I think that's, you know, that's how, that's how, that's how <laughs> I did it. You know, I just, I did it with that, that's personal blog was the thing that got me noticed. So <clears throat> I'm all about the personal blog still in 2021 when everyone's telling me blogs are not cool anymore. I think that they are still very cool. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that's I think that's great advice. And I think I think it's probably um that people are thinking they're not cool like because this the switch to following on social media, but I think that you're coming at it from a from a different angle of like almost like a portfolio of like curating a yeah, collection a really good of word. your work and your thoughts and your images. Definitely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is so which is so important. Um, so thank you so much. This was such a oh, lovely chat. You. We touched on so many things, which I'm very happy about. Me too. Um, where can people find you on the internet? So I am on Instagram um, at Marie Southerd Ospina. And my Instagram actually links to my link tree, which has links to um, all the sites that I'm writing for at the moment. So it's all it's all there. It's all on Instagram. <laughs> Wonderful. That makes uh, makes my job very easy. <laughs> I will hyperlink that in the show notes oh. so people can uh, click right through and find all of your stuff. Thank you so much, Thank Marie. Thank you. It's always lovely to chat with you. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Fashion for All. Please be sure to check our show notes for information and links to our guests and their work. Be sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast platform of choice and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. For more Smart Glamour goodness, you can head to smartglamour.com and follow us on Facebook at backslash smartglamour and Instagram at smart underscore glamour. Thanks.